Listen, I get it. There are about a hundred different Bible study apps and guides out there, but I want to tell you about one that you may not have heard of yet, Yarrow. Yarrow offers beautifully designed inductive Bible studies and a digital app that guides you through scripture so that you can know what it says and understand what it means for your actual life. No matter where you're coming from or what season of life you're in, Yarrow is the Bible study guide that will help you unearth the truth of scripture so that it can take root in your heart and propel you deeper in your relationship with God. Go check out their first study, Known, which is all about your identity in Christ at yarrow.org. They are offering 10% off with the code JOURNEYWOMEN10. So go to yarrow.org and use the code JOURNEYWOMEN10 for 10% off and download the Yarrow app to study for free today. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Last week, we discussed creation and the rebellion of man. And today, we're digging deeper into the reality of our rebellion with Dr. Rebecca DeYoung. Dr. DeYoung has her PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and she's been teaching ethics and the history of ancient medieval philosophy at Calvin College for over 20 years. Dr. DeYoung has extensively researched the topic of sin, and I know you're going to love hearing from her today. Now, sin and rebellion might not seem like the most encouraging topics that we could choose to address, but I hope that you'll see in this conversation that as we grow in awareness of our brokenness, we only grow in our recognition and awe of God's grace to us despite our sin. I am so tempted to call you Dr. DeYoung, but Rebecca, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm just so excited to have been connected with you at a distance via your book that's just being re-released, Glittering Vices. It's just been re-released in June, correct, of last year? Mm-hmm. Such an interesting and convicting read. I am so curious what it is that inspired you to dive deep into the topic of the vices. It wouldn't be my first pick. Let's put it that way. <laughs> It certainly wouldn't be mine either, because if you start out sort of coming from a Calvinist tradition, the last thing you want to do is say, oh, and my specialization is sin. (laughs) What really happened to me was that I was reading through some texts by Thomas Aquinas on the virtues and the vices with my students. And they said to me, wow, this is the most practical material we've read in our whole time in college. And I thought, wow, you know, I felt the same way. I felt like there was diagnostic insight here that I was being taught about my own life in a way that I had never seen it clearly before. But to have their experience resonate with my experience, I thought, huh, maybe there is some power here in these texts. And they said to me, you should write this up into a book. So I did. Before we start to dig into the minutia, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do so that the listeners can get a feel for where you're coming from. As I've already alluded, I'm a college professor. I teach at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I've been there for 20 plus years now teaching philosophy to undergraduates and researching topics like character development and virtue ethics 
the history of philosophy. So I teach everything from sort of St. Augustine all the way through medieval theologians like Thomas Aquinas. So everything in the Greek tradition I'm trying to pull forward. And a lot of the work that we do at Calvin, the mission of the college is really about sort of how to think about our past as Christians and then how to translate that forward and be cultural transformers with all of that tradition as our inheritance. It's really a world renewal process or project, and we can't do that well unless we're transformed ourselves. So the mission of the college resonates really well with my own research, which is kind of handy. On the side, I just like to run and go hiking in national parks with my family, and I love music, things like that. Time with family is a big part of my life right now. I think that listeners will find it very interesting to hear that you do have four kids, all kind of teenage into their early 20s, correct? Yes, they're helping me practice humility. (laughs) (laughs) That season of life. You've alluded to kind of where you started studying this topic, the topic of sin, but I would love to hear from you. How does a better understanding of our sin help us and spur us on towards Christ-likeness? Like, what's the value in engaging in learning about this topic? That's a good question, because I think, especially if you're coming at this from a Protestant angle, your initial worry is going to be, oh, well, I don't want to become like Martin Luther, who spent two hours in the confessional just obsessing about every little detail and, and getting caught up in his own guilt and never sort of getting out of that pit. We of course, want to emphasize grace. So what's with all the sin talk here? My own experience with the sins fits this ancient tradition that I'm drawing from really well. They described the discernment process that the sin list gives them as like the kind of diagnostic work that a doctor would do. So imagine yourself, something doesn't feel right. You're kind of struggling. You just know something's not right. So you go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you have these symptoms. That means this is the right diagnosis for you. And you thought, oh my goodness, I had no idea. How do you treat that? And the doctor says, well, here's how you treat it. So the whole point is you don't go to sort of the great physician for some kind of shame and blame story about how bad you are. You're going to the doctor and he's offering you healing. So I think it's when we have a sense of our own struggle and the fact that we're not able to figure this out on our own and we're not able to disentangle ourselves. We need some help. You go to the physician of souls and you find a regimen that gives you healing and that ultimately makes you whole. And what's great about that frame is that it's a frame of love, right? You're going to someone who wants you to be well. Ah, I love that so much. I think it'd be helpful, you know, your book specifically focuses on the vices and you talk a lot about the difference between the vices and sin. Where did sin come from, originate? What's sin? And feel free to just dive into the differences between sin and the vices as well. Sin is a really broad term. So it can mean Mm -hmm. any number of things. It can mean something extremely broad, like our entire fallen human condition in general. Mm-hmm. It can also mean something extremely targeted, like this individual action, some thought, word, or deed that offends God in some way. And then there's also this middle territory of patterns of sin, dispositions of character, ways in which our lives sort of fit into grooves or well-worn ruts of sin. And that comes from repeated actions. So vices fit in that middle territory. They're more than a single act of sin, but they're not sort of your generic human nature 
that's fallen overall. They're in this middle ground of patterns in our character. Mm-hmm. And the trouble with that kind of stuff is that it is a well-worn groove and it's very hard to get ourselves back out of it. In fact, impossible. Yeah, I love the example that you offer of a sled. We're here in Hanover, New Hampshire. There's snow on the ground. And actually, we just had a major snowstorm a couple of months ago. And I decided with much determination that we were going to go sledding. And the first run is a challenging run. The second run's a challenging run. But as things begin to pack down, they it becomes easier and easier to go down that path. And you use that as an analogy to explain uh, how those sins can become part of our character. No, it's a classic Michigan example. And if you've <laughs> ever gone sledding with someone else, you know that all you have to do to flip the sled out of the rut is stick out a boot, right? So it's not as though we can't act out of character occasionally. It's just that when people you know, say an outside observer would look at our character, they would say, well, these are the dominant character traits. So that's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. Not one-off stuff, but things that have worn a groove in us. For sure. I think it's worth revisiting, even though I would assume that most listeners are on the same page and probably have a general understanding. But what is the punishment for sin? What is the problem with the fact that sin is such a significant part of our existence. It takes some retooling, I think, for us, especially Reformed people, Mm -hmm. to think about sin in different terms than law and offense. So there's nothing wrong with thinking about sin that way. Scripture certainly talks about it that way. Sin being a transgression of God's law certainly makes sense to us. All of us are catechized. We're like, sin is lawlessness. Yes, we get we get that. But there's this other side of things. For example, look in all the wisdom literature in scripture, Psalm 1, the first nine chapters of Proverbs. It's everywhere. This idea that sin is also a self-destructive, folly-following way of life. So the proverb writer will say things like, the cords of sin held me fast. And the writer of Psalm 1 will say, I'm not going to walk in the way of sinners. Yeah, I'm going to stay rooted in the law of God and meditate on it day and night. So this is yeah. a lifestyle we're talking about. And the picture that you get in biblical wisdom literature is that one of the problems with sin is that you're choosing to destroy yourself. You're choosing a way of life where you are seeking fulfillment in a place that it is impossible to find it. And so there's something self-frustrating about this way. Well, let's turn away from self-destruction and self-frustration and turn toward a more life-giving life. Mm, mm -hmm. And if you look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, how does he begin his teaching about wisdom? I mean, of course, he's the wisest teacher there is. So in terms of wisdom literature, here's your guy. He begins his sermon by saying, blessed are they. In other words, yes. here's a way of life, the same words as the psalmist oh, yes. in Psalm 1, right? Blessed and blessed. And what does he give you? He gives you a list of virtues in the Beatitudes and then gives you a way of life that goes heart deep. So I think what he's offering us, what the scriptures can offer us is a picture of sin as self-defeating or self-destructive. And it's at least as important to understand that aspect of sin as the sort of God's going to punish you on high from sin. I mean, in some ways, sin is its own reward or punishment in this case, right? So when we say the wages of sin is death, 
Well, that's almost like natural consequences parenting on God's part, if you want to think about it that way, right? This is the way of you banging your head against a wall, trying to be happy in all the wrong ways, looking for love in all the wrong places, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, when I find myself in sin and pff, your book, man. <laughs> okay, just imagine what it was like to write it, okay? <laughs> the thing I found most helpful about it, Rebecca, was that there's certain areas where you may, like the character issue, it truly is an issue of character because it's such a blind spot. It's a way of life. And I think the difficult thing is beginning to discern the patterns of rhythm or desire that we have fallen into where we are not looking to what is right and good, not looking to the good life that God intends for us. So how can we begin to discern the thoughts and patterns of our hearts so that we might see ourselves more accurately? Part of what is difficult about the vices is that they start to feel so natural to us. And so you're right, it does become a blind spot. They're offering us sort of false promises, glittery substitutes, if you want to put it that way, for happiness and the blessed life that God calls us to. So we're going after what looks like the good life to us, what looks like it will make us happy. And we get sort of caught up in our own sort of deceptive program. So how do you step back from that? Well, there's any number of ways, but the way that the desert Christians practiced it back in the fourth century of Egypt was to have a respected mentor who would say, I see these symptoms in you. Let's look deeper. So we can also hit things like a life crisis where something that we've persistently tried stops working for us. That can happen accidentally, or sometimes it can happen intentionally. For example, I often use a sort of trial runs of spiritual disciplines with my students mm-hmm. as self-examination exercises. I'm like, look, let's just keep a journal of the times we were angry this week. And let's just see, let's just see what we find. And sure enough, you get slapped in the face by what you find. And you think, oh, I didn't realize I had such a wrathful control problem. Well, now I know. So there are disciplines that sort of uncover these things. There are life crises that uncover these things. And there are wise people, I think, that speak into our life who can say, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm noticing. Yeah, that's such a gift. We know, obviously, as believers, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become new people, but that our identity in Christ is now and it's also not yet. Like our new selves are being created, but we're not yet fully mature and perfected, but we will be. How do we grow into this new identity that we have in Christ? My own experience has been that the literature that we find on virtue cultivation is very, very self-helpy. Yeah. (laughs) Even Christian literature on it, even theological literature tends to be, let's practice harder and make the virtue team go be like Jesus. You have to be so, so, so careful to leave room for grace here. The way that I frame this is, look, the old self is characterized by vices. The Christ-like self we're growing into yet is full of Christ-like virtue. It's his character. But what's the bridge between the two? And Mm. the way that I frame it in the second edition more explicitly is that spiritual disciplines play that role. So the disciplines aren't practicing to become virtuous. What they are is opening your hands. If you're practicing a discipline like, for example, silence, you're literally sitting there and just stopping the constant 
feed from your own mouth and your own mind and stopping to listen and receive. So the disciplines were once defined as sort of practices of just paying attention, being receptive, opening our lives up to transformation. And what's remarkable is that there is no predictable script for what gets broken open, what gets changed, what gets transformed. So what you'll often find is that you go into a spiritual discipline with some idea of, oh, this is what the outcome is going to be. I'm going to sort of, I'm going to go after this vice with this spiritual discipline. And I'm like, well, good luck with the mapping because (laughs) there's really no formula here. I mean, I was reading a book by Richard Foster and ran across a quote where he says, fasting reveals the things that control us. Hmm. And I thought, huh, well, let's see. So I tried fasting one particular Lent. And I didn't come from a tradition where we did much sort of fasting as, or many sort of traditional spiritual disciplines. So that was new to me. You know, the details aren't important. I wasn't like eating nothing, but I was eating enough less than my normal amount that I was hungry most of the time, a little crabby about it, you know, a little tired, a little cranky. And I found that after two weeks, I sort of got into a rhythm. Like, okay, we're not going to be eating here. We're going to be praying instead. All right, I get it. And I thought, oh, yeah, I got this fasting thing all figured out. And it's only like three weeks into Lent. Yay me, right? Except that what happened as I moved forward is that I realized that the tiredness was accumulating on me. Hmm. So I couldn't reach now for my, you know, creamer, flavored creamer laden cup of coffee to kind of now you're getting Juice personal. Up my morning. <laughs> it's very close to home for me too. Um, I couldn't do the kind of fast fueled snacks on the go. I mean, I was a busy mom. I was teaching. It was all the things, right? So I found that I had to actually slow down, hmm. stop doing as many things hmm. because I was too tired to keep up with my old lifestyle yeah. on my new fasting regimen. And I had this very very crabby conversation with God that went something like this, God, I gave you the food thing. Okay. But I did not give you my calendar. I did not give you my to-do list. I did not give you my dinner. And I thought, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I think we've just broken something open here. Exactly. (laughs) So the idea was you don't know where he's going to come in and say something about what's in your heart. I had a control problem. I had an achievement problem. And what's so interesting to me is that I keep having to learn this. So it's not that you're making no progress. It's that there's always another layer to uncover. There's, If you want to put it positively, there's always room to grow. So when I was in graduate school, I had this struggle with pusillanimity, which you can read if you read the beginning of the book. <laughs> um, this idea that, oh, I, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. Right. Know, I'll never be able to make it with these smart people. I resonated with that. Yeah, I think we all do, right? We've all had it, some experience like that or other. So I thought, oh, I need to stop relying on myself. I need to rely on grace. And Sabbath keeping was the practice then that helped me do that. Well, here I am 10 years later doing the fasting. And it's like, oh, I'm kind of still there. The whole achieving. Huh. Okay, now I need to relearn to kind of let go a little bit more. And that in turn, I think was very essential preparation for a kind of radical laying down that I had to do when I went through cancer treatment 10 years after that. So there's this sense that God knows what he's doing, right? There's stages and seasons to this. He's going to dig 
down to a certain level, a level perhaps that you can handle at the time. Mm-hmm. And then once you get comfortable with him being there, he's going to dig down to the next level and the next level until he's got all of you. He's got your whole heart. Mm, mm. So there's a sense in which, yeah, good luck predicting what the outcome is going to be. It isn't always a super comfortable journey. If you think about the metaphor of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly here, in the middle, the caterpillar turns to mush. And that is sometimes how it feels. Like, who am I? What just happened to me? And my life is falling apart. And then, oh, the butterfly. Oh, that's right. There's new life at the end of this process. Do you ever find yourself so busy that you can't find time to prioritize God's Word? Dwell Bible app can help you out. With Dwell, I can listen to and meditate on the scriptures in the car, in the middle of the night, or while I'm making meals and tending to the needs of our household. Incorporating the Bible into everyday moments is so easy with Dwell. I am constantly using the playlists on walks or as I fall asleep to review the scripture that I have been memorizing. The soothing background music, the ability to select your preferred translation or narrator, the sleep timer, and the read-along feature with Dwell make it the most helpful Bible reading app on the market. Their newest release is called Dwell Daily, and it will help you immerse yourself in the Word, pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for 25% off. I mean, it's just that Romans 8 thing, right? Where it's like, okay, he has our good in mind and he has our sanctification in mind. Like that is all just makes me take heart. And I had a mentor who told me he's prepared you for what he has prepared for you. Mm -hmm. And that was reminiscent of what you just shared. And I think in the midst of it, when we're kind of in that mushy stage, it's hard to feel like we have freedom and it's hard to see that restorative peace. We know like God is making all things new, but we're we're feeling, (laughs) we're not feeling like it in the moment. So how is he doing that in the already and the not yet? And how can we embrace these new practices in our life when it doesn't necessarily feel, I don't know what the right word is, but it feels clunky and challenging. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I'd like to tell my students is start way smaller than you think you need to. Interesting. In what way? So it's a way to sort of kick ambition out of the process, right? This is not an ambitious New Year's resolution type of Hmm. project. This is a, what's a daily way I can encounter God? Hmm. Something very small And it's really just practicing paying attention to him, Hmm. being a little bit more open than you were yesterday. Hmm. So I love tiny, small ways to keep God in the picture, if you want to put it that way. And if you can think of the disciplines that way, I think they're more accessible. It's not sort of a new dutiful to-do list (laughs) to make you a better Christian. Receive the word let it wash over you. Just receive it as a gift. Don't try to map or analyze what it's doing. Just receive it. And what you find is if you do that long enough, you just start to see things differently. (laughs) Here's another example that I love to use with my students. We call it taking your wrath for a ride. Most people have issues with angry wrath control behind the steering wheel. All right. So even the metaphors, right? I have my hands on the wheel, right? I'm in the driver's seat. They're control metaphors. 
and we love to feel in control. And when that becomes vicious, when that sort of becomes a vice pattern in us, let's just go right to the heart of the, the matter. When you're in the car, make that your time with God. Yes. When you get in, invite God to get in with you. When you wait at a stoplight, use the waiting to be present. Just pay attention to the fact that he's with you. So waiting isn't now a waste of time. It's a chance to be present and to be attentive. Don't speed because hurry leads to impatience and insensitivity to others. And here's my favorite one. Pray for everyone who passes you. They need your intercession more than your imprecations. Mm. I mean, they really do. I have been a person in a hurry for much of my life. And now that I look back, I think, yeah, I probably needed people to pray me out of that state because it was kind of a toxic mess. <laughs> it's just a little everyday thing, right? It requires kind of almost no extra effort on your part. It's just inhabiting that activity in a different way. I love it when the spiritual disciplines are just ways of integrating into your already everyday rhythms of life some way of paying attention to how God is present. Mm, that is fantastic. I think especially for those of us who are in really busy seasons where when you think about a spiritual discipline, you think, how am I going to add that in when my kids are already coming down the stairs at six in the morning? Or, you know, it, it just doesn't feel feasible, but instead to ask the Lord to give you eyes to see ways that you can kind of redeem the time that you already have. Mm -hmm. And look for him in those moments because he's there and he wants to meet you in them. So that is really encouraging. You know, when I think about fighting sin, it makes me a little bit nervous <laughs> to talk about myself so much. I would love to talk about how God is working for us and with us and in us um, as we fight our sin. I don't know what it is in me Rebecca, but I have a hard time holding those things in tandem. The fact that I am fighting my sin and that he is also producing in me the ability to fight my sin. So how does that work itself out biblically? <laughs> I have been on the receiving end of surgery. It's not fun, but it is interesting to listen to the language we use for surgery. It's something that you undergo. So you have to submit to surgery. You have to submit to the surgeon's care. And then it's anesthesia for you. You're, I mean, there's a, a very real sense in which you're not in control of what gets mended or taken out or whatever. My friend Sharon Garla-Brown loves to use the term heart surgery for what's going on. I mean, in some respects, your job is to trust the surgeon mm -hmm. and to lay on the table, right? You have to go to the hospital and you have to agree to the procedure. And after that, what happens, happens. And you have to submit to that too. One of the nicest images I've found for how this works is St. Benedict, as you probably know, has his famous rule of life, which he set for everyone in his monastic orders from the sixth century for centuries beyond that. So it had a huge impact on the way Christians built their rhythm of life, a rhythm of life that had space and openness for God's transformative work. The Latin word rule, regula, also translates as a trellis. So what you're doing is you're setting up a trellis, mm. but then God's growing the vine that climbs the trellis. So 
you have to think, well, it's, you're not the gardener. You're not the cultivator. You're not the one in charge here. You're not the one who gives growth in life. You just set up the trellis, right? So that there's a scaffold available for that plant to really climb and grow and flourish. There's a sense in which intentionality is important. Being reflective about your life is important. But also there's this really hands-off letting go aspect. Are you looking to boost your protein intake in the new year? Many of us are not getting enough protein, especially at breakfast. So PrepDish wants to help you out. For the month of January, PrepDish is offering bonus protein boost meal plans when you sign up. This free bonus shows you how to quickly prep four protein-rich dinners and one breakfast to help you reach your protein goals. Each menu will have you covered for the whole week. You guys, these meals are super mouthwatering and delicious. They have slow cooker carnitas bowls, stuffed pepper soup, and a Swiss chard mushroom and goat cheese frittata. Just imagine coming home to a ready-for-you protein-rich meal to refuel after a long day at work. This is a limited time offer, so make sure to sign up before the end of January to get these free bonus meal plans. Head into your healthiest year yet, feeling confident that dinner is planned, prepped, and will sustain you for all the things you have going that day with PrepDish. Check it out and get a two-week free trial at PrepDish.com journey. Remember, for the month of January, anyone who signs up gets the Protein Boost Meal Plan bonus. Again, that's PrepDish.com journey for two weeks free plus bonus menus. What are some of the daily rhythms of discipleship or you call them graced disciplines, which I really like that terminology, that bridge a life held captive to sin and a life that just shines with the growth of Christ's likeness? There are two categories of disciplines that are important here. One is a category of what I call disciplines that do detachment work. They sort of pull us back from being excessively attached to things that we're overly attached to, that we're either idolizing or we're clinging to too tightly, that we're trusting in instead of God. But then there's also a side of the disciplines that does attachment work, right? So in the ways that silence and solitude help us strip away our attachment to other people's approval and an audience and what other people are thinking about us, they can kind of pull us away from that But they also, at the same time, open up space for God to speak and for you to listen. And so you want to pay attention to rhythms of life that kind of have that two-sided function. They're actually doing that at the same time. The great thing about the disciplines is that they can cover every single aspect of your life. So you're speaking and you're listening and you're working and you're resting and you're shopping and you're saving and your interactions with others and your time by yourself. I mean, there's a discipline for absolutely everything. Just to make this really practical, one of the exercises that I love to do with my students is a silence exercise. Now you think, well, you're on a college campus and you're in class, you can't stick silence in your day. How does that even work? You're living in a dorm with 200 other people. Um, You don't even have time alone. So what I said to my students is, well, don't do total silence. Just don't talk about yourself for a week. And again, talking is something everybody does every day. So there's no add-in here. So you're basically off social media. Yes. And you're also, you can't complain about your professors at all, Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> but you also can't, you know, talk about your favorite movie and all the music you like, because, you know, that's a way to make people think you're cool too. 
you can't rationalize the things that you're doing. You can't make excuses. The most interesting thing that we found about that discipline when we first started practicing it was that we couldn't even remember to practice it. <laughs> We'd be halfway through a conversation and realize, oh I'm, oh, I'm talking about myself again. I've done it again. I can't even stop myself. So the first thing we realize is that this is so deeply ingrained, we don't even realize we're doing it. We don't even realize the extent to which we're doing it. So there's a story in the desert Christians about Abba Agatha, who kept a pebble in his mouth for three years to teach himself silence. So I said to my students, you don't have to use a stone, but you could use a Tic Tac or a piece of gum and use that to at least remember that you're doing this exercise. And so once we sort of got used to doing it and got a little bit better at it, my students reported by the end of the week that silence had opened up space to pay attention to others. And that was really hard in the sense that we're not very good at paying attention. But when we did make space for other people to share, and we weren't filling all that space with our own self-talk, they reported after only a week that their friendships had been deepened, that they had had conversations they never would have had with their mouth open. Hmm. And one student even reported that because he couldn't defend himself in a conversation, a moment of reconciliation broke open with someone that he had been in a dispute with for many, many years. So I think don't underestimate the power of the little moment, Yeah, the little thing. I started practicing Sabbath way back in graduate school as a response to my discover of pusillanimity. And now I find it absolutely indispensable. Can't survive a week without it. So it's grown on me. It's become natural, but only because I started very, very small. How has just coming to a deeper understanding of your own sinfulness helped you treasure Christ more? I used to think I was a pretty good person. You know, like I try hard. I obey the rules. I go to church. I'm just trying to do my duty here, people, trying to be a good mom. I have found myself in such desperate need of grace and mercy. It hasn't made me a self-flagellating, self-hating person. It's just made me unbelievably more deeply treasure how much I'm beloved. Hmm. It's like, wow, I need Christ so badly. And he's there for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who could believe it? You know, in some respects, I have always come at life, I guess, from the idea that I kind of had to earn people's approval. Mm -hmm. And this idea that he just hands it to you. He's already there. He's going to love you into a better you rather than sort of finding you worthless and trying to do this massive rehab program on you because, wow, we just don't even know where to start with this one. So it's almost the sense of a trampoline, which is an image I use in the book. So when you're starting to bounce on a trampoline, you know, at, at the very beginning, you can't bounce very hard. You can't go very high and you can't go very low. So you're just sort of, you know, getting started, getting your momentum going in the middle, which means you're not reaching very deep into a sense of your own sinfulness, but you're also not really that conscious of how high and wide and long and deep is the love and grace of Christ. But as you jump higher, of course, now you have enough momentum to push lower but the lower you go, of course, then also you have 
the springboard to jumping even higher. And so there's this sense of sort of widening the gap in both directions. The more deeply that you see your sinfulness, the more gracious and amazing the love of God is revealed to you. The great saints all see this dynamic of, wow, I can't believe the depths of my own sin here. But also these are the people whose lives are the most beautiful picture of their belovedness and the grace that they've been given from God. And so I think as he allows you to go deeper, he also allows you to see the heights of his love for you. And that's so important to keep in mind. I also have to say, I have such absolutely wonderful friends and mentors for this journey. I can see the people that God's put in my life, both to speak truth into it, but also to speak grace into it. And that's been very telling to me. They didn't look at me and go, oh, I roll. What an immature Christian. Boy, does she have a long way to go before she sees things the way we see it. They were like, Rebecca, you're so beloved. And the more secure you are in God's love, the more you're willing to open yourself to him. And then you can see deeper. So start with love. I guess that's my short answer to your question. Start with love and approach other people that way too. If you give people grace and compassion as fellow strugglers, that's probably the most important step you could take toward enabling them to open their own lives. We're all dealing with a mess inside. I'm never going to point out like the super bad sinner people in the headlines. That is not the point. The point isn't finger pointing about those other people who have the really bad version of this vice. The examples that I'm trying to pull on are the every day, everybody does this stuff symptoms that we all experience because I want everyone to say, hey, we're all in this together. Yeah, I definitely did not walk away from having read your book with a greater sense of my neighbor's sin. It was impossible to do that. You're such a great historian, really, Rebecca, so you can speak to this in the context of history. But in my lifetime, maybe it's that I'm getting older or maybe it's with, I don't know, the accessibility of other people via the Internet. It just feels like there's not a real measure of charitability and grace being extended, especially in Christian spheres. And so, like, how does remembering how much God loved us, like you referenced, even in our sin and gazing at that, change the way that we move toward other people, whether it be someone in our proximity or at a distance? I think all the vices are rooted in some kind of sense of inadequacy. So either I don't feel like I'm enough, or I don't feel like the thing I'm grasping for is going to be enough, or I don't feel like other people are going to love me enough. If there's any sort of MO for the vices, it's not enough, which is why they all tend to excess. They're over their ways of over grasping for things. Sort of it's a desperate attempt to overcompensate. And so if you think about the root of the vices, you know, the tradition will tell you, oh, it's pride. And we always think the arrogant version of pride, like, oh, I got this all handled. I'm self-sufficient. But what if we thought about pride as a fearful mode? Like, I'm not sure God will take care of me. I'm not sure. I can get what I need. So I'm going to overgrasp. I'm going to try to overmanage my life in a way and and hang on to happiness so tightly. And if that overgrasping and overcompensating out of fear is a route into the vices, I think that enables us to be more compassionate toward others. And I think that is such a telling question in all of the vices. What picture of yourself, what picture of the good life 
are you guarding? What do you feel like is being threatened here? What do you feel like you care about that you're worried you won't get enough of? Why can't you trust God with that? Why do you feel threatened about that? And I think that's just a way into not only understanding ourselves better, but also understanding other people better. And that's a way of compassion, right? To say, we're all struggling for a reason because we're all dealing with a not enough kind of approach to life. And maybe that's a sense that we're not enough. And maybe it's a sense that the world isn't enough, but it's, it's a position of vulnerability, of felt threat. If we can excavate that in others, that's a word of grace and compassion. We can offer them a savior who will meet their need and maybe model how to trust him and not rely on our own power quite so much. We're right back to pusillanimity, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's a never-ending lesson. (laughs) Unfortunately, I had to memorize that word because I know it all too well. But I agree with you. And I think when we start to get a vision for the body of Christ or a more biblical understanding of the body of Christ, we begin to want one another's sanctification. And we begin to want to see one another treasure Christ more. And that helps us move toward the cross. I love that picture that Bonhoeffer offers just of two sinners standing in desperate need of grace, the ground leveled at the foot of the cross. It's just such a good word. I really appreciate it. I don't want to leave anything on the table, Rebecca. Do you have any other insight that you think might be helpful for the listeners as they're wanting to grow in this area of just wanting to better understand their sin and to treasure Christ all the more? Well, for me, the the real transition is between doing and being. So we might think of wearing that good old WWJD bracelet and thinking, what would Jesus do? And that's the way to follow him. And I don't want to knock that at all. I don't have any beef against that. But what if we change the question to what would Jesus be like if he were me? That's a being question. And in some respects, the best way to be like Jesus is to be with him. That is to say, to just spend more time with him. When I think about the people who've made the most impact on me spiritually, it's people who boy, within 30 seconds of meeting them, you can just tell they know Christ. They have a kind of easy presence. They have a kind of warm hospitality. They are filled with a kind of joy and peace. They don't come at you with need. They come at you with fullness. I've met people like this and I think, wow, I want to be like that. What if that were the goal, right? To spend so much time with Jesus that you carried that around with you. And other people responded to you by saying, it's such a gift to be with you. How can I be more like that? I mean, what a witness that would be for the church. Yes, being with people like that are definitely one of my simple joys. But what are three of your simple joys, Rebecca? This is a question that we ask every guest Mm -hmm. who comes on the show so we can get to know you a little bit better. Sure. I think one of my greatest joys is teaching. I mm-hmm. There is something about being in a classroom with college students that just lights me up from the inside. And I've had opportunities now to teach in prison and do some prison ministry and some prison education. And I can say it's at least as joyful there as it is in a college classroom on a traditional campus. I love music. I love especially choral music. 
sacred choral music. So wonderful. There's what, something. What's your, uh, what are you? Soprano, alto? I don't oh, know. no, I'm not the singer. I'm the listener. <laughs> I, wish, <laughs> I wish I had the gift of, of song myself, but I am a grateful, grateful receiver of it. I often find that when I don't have the words, music speaks for me. Yeah. Um, that's a gift. And I also just absolutely love to be outside in creation. So yeah. if you put me on a hike somewhere in the mountains with no people around and there's quiet and there's space, nature speaks of God to me. And that's mm. a place where I can always count on meeting him. So that's a gift. That's also. fabulous. That's one of my favorite things about being here in New Hampshire as well. So mm-hmm. I am with you in that. Well, it's been really neat to hear how you have had a host of mentors in your life by God's grace. That's really the heart behind the Journey Women podcast, which is what I was sharing with you before we started Mm -hmm. the call. And I love to ask every guest who we've had the opportunity to sit under, who is it that's had the greatest impact on your journey with Jesus? This may seem like a strange answer, but I think because I am a lover of books and of history, I think the story of St. Augustine. um, Yeah, I I can tell that in your writing. You just Mm -hmm. quote him right and left. And I'm like, I'm going to have to pick up some Augustine after this. Yeah, Augustine and Aquinas are both pretty big. But Augustine tells his story as a story, um, as his own personal journey, but also Mm -hmm. then as a, a type or a token of the general human journey. And I just did not like the confessions the first time I read it, but I have taught it now for almost 25 years. And I have to say that book has really grown on me. So I do feel like Augustine is someone who has spoken about the importance of the gospel story in telling our own story. And that's been a word that has been so important for me. Mm, Well, it's been such a joy to get to have you uh, with us today. Such a gift to get to learn under Uh, someone who's done such in-depth study on this topic. And then additionally, who's just a season ahead of many of us who are, are listening today. So thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. It was a pleasure to be here and talk to you today. We pray that as you listen to this conversation, you came to a deeper understanding of what God has rescued us from. If you want access to scripture references, quotes, or resources from my conversation with Dr. DeYoung, you can find all of that over in the show notes on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com. There, you can also find more episodes in this series, Knowing and Loving God. If you like this episode, we would love it if you'd take a few seconds to leave a rating and review on iTunes. We read every single one of them, like this one from Kate that says, Each time an episode ends, I find myself desiring to pick up my Bible and spend time with the Lord. Praise God! We are so excited to hear that and grateful for the time that you took to share your feedback with us. Doing so really does help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it helpful as they navigate whatever seasons and challenges they might be facing on their journeys to glorify God. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.